2: Welcome to Nightlight, Light, everybody. I'm glad you could join me because I've got a really good one here tonight. Um, You know I read the books of all the authors that that I do, um, that I interview. And, you know, I I insist on doing that. But this book that we're going to talk about tonight, which is Judaism Without Tribalism, A Guide to Being a Blessing to All, um, I even read the appendixes and i found them to be as enlightening as well so if i have if i have jumped into this book as deeply as that you must know it touched me profoundly and and is is probably a book that i will give as gifts and um and definitely read through again and again because i have found it enlightening and um it has been a book that has Brought questions to my mind, and it answers them. And it's it, it was a joy to read. Um, this book investigates Judaism at its best and sanest. It strips away outdated and harmful beliefs that have accrued over the centuries, and returns to the essential truths that are too often ignored in favor of tradition, tribal identity, or the claims of the powerful. The result is a vibrant Judaism for the 21st century and beyond, a Judaism that draws deeply from history and scripture, yet addresses the unmet needs of the present and the future. It's a Judaism that is open and accessible to everyone, and that means everyone. Judaism without tribalism is a call to be a light to the nations and a blessing to all the people of earth. It's a Judaism free from legalism and tribalism, a Judaism that refuses to serve patriarchy and power. Written by one of today's most respected respected, and most con, unconventional uncon, Jewish thinkers, Judaism without tribalism is a manifesto, an invitation to completeness, and a call for inner and outer spiritual revolution. It's also a deeply practical guide to living authentically, breath by breath, and day to day for everyone of every belief. Rabbi Shapiro is an award-winning author of over two dozen books on religion and spirituality, a congregational rabbi for 20 years. He currently co-directs One River Wisdom School, blogs at rabbiramy.blogspot.com writes a regular column for Spirituality and Health magazine called Roadside Assistance for the Spiritual Traveler and hosts the weekly internet radio show, How to Be a Holy Rascal on Unity Online Radio. And in his spare time, he probably does other stuff too, but it feels like with all that he has going, there's always room for something more, I would, I would hazard a guess. Welcome to the show, Rabbi Shapiro.
3: Thank you very much, Barbara. It's a delight to be here.
2: Well, I'm just thrilled that you're here because I have bunches of questions, and as I said before we came on the air, I, I grew up in, in a mostly Jewish neighborhood and spent 40 years deep in their traditions and everything, and your book has has shown me a whole nother side of Judaism and and I find that it is that everything that you have here is is appropriate for everyone of every culture of every religion it it I mean Judaism has a corner in the market because you wrote the book but but it it has material for everybody to utilize and use and enhance their lives especially especially because so many people are now looking for the light within their life, within themselves.
3: Well, you know, I think that religion is a human creation. I don't think God creates religions.
2: And because it's uh-huh. a human
3: creation, I think every religion has something to offer all of us. And oh,
2: absolutely. I think
3: it's a mistake to limit yourself to one religion. I mean, my... I. I was born Jewish. I grew up Jewish. Uh, Judaism is my foundational faith, I guess you'd say. But I'm, since I was in high school, I studied Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, I've been initiated into different traditions so I can go more deeply into them. I mean, I, I was a professor of world religions for a decade. So I think religion is a gift to humanity. Uh, and though you know Judaism sort of belongs to the Jews, I know that's what you might say. It's really a, a gift to humanity itself. It's the Jewish gift to, to humankind, and you, know, you could say the same about Islam. It's the, the Muslim gift to humankind. So I think you could say that about every religion. And we, I think, if we're, if we're if we're wise, we ought to look at all of them and learn from all of them.
2: I, I I agree. What I have found is most of the religions that that I have looked into, and I I, I tried on many of them myself. They eventually felt like they were boxing me in, and so I I, I now call myself almost a universalist because I find value in all of them but i don't want to just be labeled as one or another because there's so much wisdom and beauty in all of them that um that i don't i want to i want to take part in all of those aspects of life that they they do provide um i think that what i found with your book was that that of all of the practices that I have looked into, Judaism, as you have written it, is the only one that seems to have truly evolved into the 21st century with a wonderful term you call turning the Torah.
3: Yeah, we could talk about that, but I think we should be clear that if you, find, if you found that, that Judaism entered the 21st century through my book, it's because of me. Not that Judaism has evolved. Judaism is huge. It, it's not. Oh, you yeah. know, I'm not reporting on, on Judaism uh, as you know as a as a corporate thing. This is just my take on Judaism. You, you go to any religion and you end up in a box. If you end if you yeah. if you study with the people who own the box, because that's you know you got to look to see where the power is and, and where the money is and that's always in the box. So when I studied Catholicism for example, I studied with the Catholic mystics because they uh-huh. don't care about the box. They don't care about you have to become a Catholic and you have to take communion otherwise you're going to go to hell I and mean, they don't they don't care about that. They don't that's just not in their radar. So um, so you study with the mystics, you study with the Protestant mystics and the Sufis and, you know, those aspects of Hinduism and Buddhism that just, it's not about doing it according to some, you know, some organized way, some traditional way that that cannot be violated. When you deal with the mystics, you're dealing with the heart of a tradition and there's never a box. You know, there, maybe there's an arrow pointing some direction, but when you, when you deal with mystics in different traditions, you discover that that arrow is always pointing in the same direction. All the mystic arrows are pointing in the same direction.
0: And uh-huh.
3: that's, I mean, that's, that's the kind of Judaism I'm interested in, that more mystical aspect. And, and by mystical, I don't mean Kabbalistic specifically, because that's another box. You can get all wrapped up in, in the Kabbalah and they don't you know, and you're stuck in that box. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about mystics who realize uh what we say in Yiddish, alles is thought, that everything is the divine. And you know, it's not a spiritual journey. There's no place to go. It's about realizing that you are a manifesting of the divine, and everything is a manifesting of the divine. And if you don't like the word you know, "divine," you can call it consciousness or reality or whatever you want to call it. But everything is it right now. There's no place to go. There's nothing you lack. There's nothing you need. All you have to do is be aware of what's happening uh, within you and you know around you. Uh huh. But but religions. That are bo- or that those aspects of religions that are box oriented, they don't want you to know that. No, when Jesus says the kingdom is within you and, and and around you, nobody wants to take that seriously because then I don't need the church.
2: Right. Well, I think what what I admire the most is that that with Judaism, especially, there is the study of it, and then there is the debate and questioning, and in, in other areas of religious um, cultures that I have been a part of, questioning and debating were not allowed. Now, you, if you're talking the mystics, right. of course they they are, but but um, you know I haven't had the the, the pleasure of being with many of the mystics of the different religions so that what I've experienced has been the box and it's you don't question, this is it, this is you know, this is what you do, this is what you say, this is how you say it, and if you don't you go to hell. So um yes. I love the I love the questioning. I love the debate. I love the study. That to me is is wonderful. That means people are thinking and Absolute, part of the purpose absolutely. You know, part of the purpose of this show is to put material out there so people can listen to it, debate about it, question it, say that that's a, that's a bunch of junk, and then go and look to see if it's true or not. If if I can make one person think every evening when I do a show, my job here is done. And you know, it, it's wake up and pay attention, research, do some do some work on finding some of the truth that's out there and some of the wonderful material that's there. So yeah, I'm not a sure if you can make it.
3: anybody think. I don't know if you can make anybody think. I think you can find the people who are already thinking and offer them something new to think about. But I don't know if you can make somebody think. But you, but your well, notion if you, about – go ahead.
2: If you, if you offend them deeply enough, they'll think. Oh, <laughs> okay.
3: <laughs> Let's try to do that. But, you know, your idea about argument is, I mean, first of all, in Judaism, it's central to the culture. Um, yeah. You know, we we have a term uh, in Hebrew, not that anyone's going to remember that, but it's machlochet l'shem shemayim. We argue for the sake of heaven. We argue for the sake of truth because we mm-hmm. believe that, you know, that, through argument, and it's not, you know, argument like um, purposeless argument or egoic argument, I'm going to win at all costs. It's debate. It's questioning. It's, um, you know, deep exploration done with another person where the goal of the conversation, and the conversation can get heated, but the goal of the argument or the conversation is to push beyond whatever boxes you and I are stuck in. And that's, that's our job, is I push you and you push me, and we see if we can get beyond our, our limits and see what else there is if we, if we can get beyond the box. That's the one thing I love most about Judaism and the one thing I'm the most proud of as a Jew. I'll tell you a story, if, if I may. Uh, years sure. ago, I can't tell you exactly how many, because I don't remember, but years ago I was invited uh, to India for the 150th anniversary of Swami Vivekananda's birthday and it was a big celebration in New Delhi at the Ramakrishna Math one of the, the big Ramakrishna centers that Swami Vivekananda had established and the there, there were the Dalai Lama was the the key keynote speaker And they had invited a number of uh, spiritual teachers from around the world. And all of us were given the same topic. And the topic was based on a talk that Swami Vivekananda gave in 1892, 94 now, I can't remember, at the very first parliament of the world's religions that was held in Chicago, Illinois. And, At the parliament, he said that something like, I'm not quoting him, but something like, every religion brings something unique to the wisdom feast. That's not his word, that's mine. Brings something unique to the wisdom feast of humanity. And so the question that was posed to each speaker was, what does your tradition bring? What's the unique thing that your tradition brings? And my talk was about this arguing for the sake of heaven that we are encouraged to challenge the tradition, to challenge the, the teachings and the texts and our, and our stages, um in, in order to go more deep into what the possibilities are. Because you can never reach an ultimate truth. You're always moving toward it, but you can't actually grasp it. So your yeah. argument moves you in that direction. And when I finished the talk, I mean, there were it's India. So there were thousands of people present. When I finished the talk, uh, dozens of Swamis came up to talk with me afterward. And they were so impressed that a religion could make room for this kind of radical questioning and radical doubt. Cause they were telling me in their tradition, you couldn't do that. That there were set things that your guru said that you could not question. Now, uh-huh. I've been part of the Ramakrishna tradition for quite a while, and but I'm not a Swami, and my reading in that tradition doesn't suggest that at all, that people did question and continue to question, and the Swamis I know are very much about questioning and challenging and deepening their understanding. But anyway, that's what they told me. But the fact that, you know, asked what was the one thing that Judaism brings to humanity, it's this... Um love of spiritual argument and as a i mean it's a, it's a deeply held spiritual practice in judaism and you know I think every tradition would benefit from from adapting that to their own their own religious way of engaging with
2: text oh I agree with you um, and you know it's it's in, in reading, especially the Bible, which is put together by by a whole bunch of people, and you know they all had agendas and stuff like that, it, it's it's hard to grasp exactly what the truth is that they're talking about because they are creating a religion while they're writing, and therefore, what was it with it that was creating religion as opposed to the actual truth they were trying to share with humanity? So there is, there's constantly that, you know, why? why? Why is it this way? Why do you say it this way? And, and, and so there's that, there, there's confusion. And yet with the Torah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, we share the same, you know, same material for a great deal. So um, Sure, but it's found the same thing. I mean,
3: the, 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 the Torah is written by people also, I mean, and mostly men right i mean it's mostly yeah. written by men so um, and all they all have an agenda so you know it's all written by by people with an agenda and the, and the agendas don't they don't jibe so sometimes you read something that takes you in one direction and sometimes you read something that takes you in a different direction i mean you find you find things that are all about uh you know, peace and love and compassion. And then you find places where God says, you know, regarding the Amalekite people, wipe out every man, woman, child, and cow. You know, so what yeah. is it? Is it justice and compassion or is it genocide? Well, it depends on, you know, who wrote it and what they wrote it for. So
0: if they were writing
3: to get the people stirred up for war, they wrote one thing and they they had God say one, you know, a war-like thing. And if they were writing to establish uh, a just society, they have God say something else. So that's why the Bible isn't, you know, when people look at the Bible and they say, well, the truth is in there, that's not true. The Bible is a Rorschach test. You know, the truth is in you, and if you find it in the Bible, it's because you're projecting something from yourself into the text and then having the text mirror it back to you. So that's why you can find people look at the Bible and they come out with such hateful things. I mean, people who, and as Jews and Christians, can, can read the Bible and end up claiming that the Bible excuses horrible behavior, you know, toward the people they don't like. Uh, and, and what they're really saying is, I want to do horrible things toward people, but I can't do it on my own authority. So, I want the Bible to excuse my behavior. I want the God of the Bible to excuse my behavior, so I'm going to interpret the Bible in such a way so I can get away with doing whatever I want to do and I'm going to say, "Hey, it's not my idea it's God, but that's b s
2: <laughs> yeah i in a lot of places, you use the big g and the little g and right, um, right. you know and and I do understand what you're saying um because, in my opinion, that's exactly what it is. So uh, you want to explain the difference between the big G and the little g, especially Yeah. You know, right, just, right. the difference. Yeah. So,
3: you know, some, some, sometimes people come to me, you, you shouldn't use the word God at all, because it's so confusing. So, and, and and there's lots of words for God that I use instead of the word G-O-D, but in this book, You know, I was playing around with capital G and lowercase g. The lowercase g god refers to any god invented by any people. So there's the Jewish god, the Christian god, the Hindu god, the Muslim god. These are not all – these are all different gods unique to different civilizations. So when people come and say, look at an interfaith gathering, and someone says, well, we all worship the same god. First of all, that's false, and I'll tell you why in a second. But that's, that's not true. We all worship the lowercase g God of our people. So the God of the Jews, no kids. Whereas the God of the Christian has a son. And if, uh-huh. and if God doesn't have a son, then he's not God as far as Christians are concerned. So that, that can't be the same God. The God of the Muslims has no, no son. The God of the Muslims dictated the Holy Quran to Muhammad, peace, or through the angel Gabriel, peace be upon Muhammad. And the Jewish God didn't do that. The Christian God didn't do that. The, the God Krishna you know, is the hero and the, and the sage of the Bhagavad Gita. The Jewish God doesn't know anything about the Bhagavad Gita, and neither does Allah of Islam or God of Christianity. So these are not the same God. They're all lowercase g gods of different cultures. And we should recognize that, and we should respect that. The capital G God is the God beyond religion. And then you go into the mystics, you know, the God of the mystics, the God that is, you know, fundamentally beyond naming. I mean, every religion has a name or has multiple names and I'm comfortable with lots of them. But um, basically, you know, in the opening verse of the Tao De Jing of Lao Tzu, uh, Lao Tzu writes something like the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. If you could replace it with God. The God that can be named, whether it's Allah or Yudhe Vavhei in the Hebrew or Krishna or Brahma or, you know, whatever it is. Um, the God that can be named is not the eternal God. It's not the ultimate Godhead because the ultimate is beyond language. So
0: uh-huh.
3: that's the distinction I'm trying to make with the capital G and the lowercase g. I, I'm not an atheist. I think there is a greater reality of which all Beings are a manifestation, but and and we have to oh, yeah. you know if we're going to talk about it, we have to be talk about it some way. So we need metaphor. So there are certain words I like. I like the the Hindu term Brahman um, uh-huh. speaks to me because that they always talk about Brahman as the infinite, unnameable. Um, the the when the mystics talk about Yudhe Vate in the Hebrew which is not only, I mean, it's unpronounceable, so it's a name that cannot even be named. That that works for me. So there's lots of ways of talking about it. But as for a metaphor, so, you have, so people listening understand what I have in mind, think of, and this is a, a Hindu metaphor that I like, um, think of the capital G God as an infinite ocean, and all reality is a are, are, uh, way, you know, you and I, trees, plants, animals are waves of that ocean and there's no distinction between a wave and the ocean no wave is all of the ocean but the ocean is all of the wave so mm-hmm. I'm not all of God but God is all of me and that's how I that's my theology and my, you can find that my... among the mystics of, of every tradition
2: it my my personal phrase that I use is the source of all creation.
3: Yeah, yeah. I I would I also use um, something similar. I say the source and substance of all creation because I want to make the connection that there's nothing separate from God.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty sure we agree. Um, yeah, it just. No, I think we it's, to, to me, it, it's um, it, it's sometimes people talk about their God and someone else's God, and it's kind of like you just listen and, and you say okay, and and you you don't try to talk because because anything I would have to say would would probably either outrage or offend people, so I keep quiet in those particular situations. But I found in your book especially there was so much of a, a feeling of um making it making Judaism feel familiar and comfortable and not something that was outside of my realm but was really a part of my realm and I never knew it. Which is which is how how <coughs> how you how you're writing Made me feel as far as my belief system and how it fit so nicely into so many of the things that you said and, and I do want to go to turning the Torah because that to me was i love I love that phrase and I love what it meant.
3: And tell me what you loved about it uh,
2: The fact that that with each age. We, we use different vocabularies. We use different inferences. We use it, it's it's a matter of bringing the ancient into a familiar frame of reference for today's world, so that so that we understand what they were trying to say.
3: Right, and or or we can or we can hear new things in, in ancient text.
2: Absolutely, and yeah. Of course,
3: so, so one of my favorite examples. Of turning Torah, I mean this. First of all, like you, I love the phrase. I love the image because yeah. you can literally, you could when you when, and we won't go into this in any detail because it gets too too in the weeds. But you can literally read a um, a verse of Torah. You know, Hebrew is read from right to left, so you can read it right to left. Right, that. Normal, uh-huh. but you could also read it left to right if you, if you can make sense out of it. You can start in the middle and read to the outside. You can switch the letters around according to a specific um, uh, formula. So you can you can switch like the, the, the you can take the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, we take any letter in the Hebrew alphabet and exchange it for its twin at the other end of the alphabet. So the first letter and the last letter are interchangeable. The second letter and the second to the last letter are interchangeable. And you can just flip the words that way if you can make sense out of it. So I'll give you a, a, another way of, of turning Torah that maybe people can relate to. So Torah, if you, if you go and you pick up a Hebrew Bible at a bookstore, you'll see the consonants and block letters, and then below them are all these dots and dashes. Those are the vowels. The Bible, the Torah was originally written without vowels. And if you go to a synagogue and you look at a Torah scroll that's hand printed, you find the consonants, the block letters, but you don't find the the vowels underneath. And that's the original way it was written without printed vowels. You don't get printed vowels, I think, until maybe the 1200s or something. And when you're a kid, you're just, and you're learning to read it, you learn to read it without vowels. And it's just a convention that this is the way you sound these things out. So you're literally, when you learn to read the Hebrew, you're literally breathing the meaning into the word, because the vowels are your breath so if you if you had a um what do they call a character recognition software and you just fed um pieces of torah from a scroll into that software it would be gibberish because there's no vowels yeah so the the reader has to breathe the vowels in so you can when you're a kid and and you're learning how to read it you're taught to breathe certain vowels into certain words and so you're all saying the same the same, reading the same thing out loud. But you're allowed to change the vowels if doing so gives you a new sense of what the verse might be saying. So there's this amazing rabbi, Reb Nachman of Breslov, who lived in the 1800s. And he's got, oh, got thousands of teachings. But one of the ones that I find so profound, he takes... Uh, the second half of the verse of, in Leviticus nineteen eighteen that everyone knows, love your neighbor as yourself, and the Hebrew is ve'ahafda and you shall love l'rei echa your neighbor, kamocha as yourself. And he says the word for neighbor in that verse is re r e apostrophe a h, but the Hebrew is just two letters. It's a resh
0: and an ayin.
3: That gives you the the R sound and the A sound. So rea, neighbor. He says you could take the same two letters, resh and ayin, and change the vowels and have the word ra. Ra means evil. So you could have the same verse. You don't change any of the letters and you would pronounce it and you shall love. Echa, your evil, kamocha, as a part of yourself. And he says what the text could be saying, he's not saying it's either-or. In Judaism, it's always and. It's, there's another meaning, and there's another meaning, here's another meaning. But he's saying, if you're creative in the way you turn the Torah, you'll find that one of the ways that the text is telling you, you if you're going to love your neighbor, one of the prerequisites, prerequisites is to love your own shadow side. Now, he didn't say shadow because that's Carl Jung, and he wasn't even, you know, way later. But uh, Nachman is saying if you're going to love your neighbor, you have to first take ownership of your own dark side because if you don't, he says, you're going to project your own shadow, using modern terminology, you're going to project your own shadow onto your neighbor, and you'll hate your neighbor. So love your own evil, your own capacity, potential for evil, and then you'll find it easier to love your neighbor because you you, you won't force the neighbor to carry your own dark side. I mean, it's brilliant, but unless you're free to play with the text and have the skills to do it, I mean, obviously, if you're not a Hebrew reader, then that one's lost in you. But, But the idea is still right, that you can just turn this text turn the Bible over and over and over until you can, until you can find all these powerful, radical uh, new meanings in it. And that's not, you know, knowing how you grew up, Barbara, that's not how you were, what you were allowed to do in church.
2: No. <laughs> um, just a, a question. When Hebrew began to be written, was it that they didn't have symbols for vowels or they just Why did they leave them out? I know you You weren't there, but you know. No,
3: you memorized them. (laughs) They didn't need. They didn't print them. You just knew them. You're a little kid. You just, you know, when you have this this set of consonants, the word is pronounced, and they taught you, and you just remembered it. So the vowels were in your head, but not printed on a page. It's only when they later, when they printed, when they had printed Bibles that they actually, you know, with a printing press of some sort, that they actually printed the the, the vowels. Otherwise, you just learned it as a kid. I you know, I like I mean, it better you, this way. You, be, to, you know,
2: go ahead.
3: No, I was just going to say, if you go to Israel and you get some little kid who's learning to read, they're just, they read without the vowels. They don't need them. They're just taught, this is how you say these words.
2: Wow, so, um,
3: but anyway, what were you going to say?
2: Well, well, see, you know what, what, what in my background I was given was this is it. This is it. There's one meaning and one meaning only.
0: And what right. I love about right, right,
2: right. Judaism is that it gives you the freedom to try other things on for size and see if they apply and and if there's wisdom there as well and perhaps if there is hidden wisdom there maybe it's for those that have gotten to a place where they're ready to to look at alternatives and and find a greater depth of meaning
3: absolutely And, and you've actually hit on a fundamental rabbinic principle that goes back thousands of years in, in the Talmud, which is the anthology of rabbinic teachings, the rabbis preserved, first orally, and then they wrote it down, but they preserved all of the official teaching and then all of the arguments against the official teaching. And somebody asked the question, why are we having to mem? because it's all memorized at first, why do we have to yeah. memorize all the the negative stuff? You know, someone says, let's do X, and everyone goes, okay, and then someone else, you know, the minority opinion is no, doing something else. Why do we have to remember the, the minority opinion? And the answer is because the majority opinion is for today. Maybe another time this issue comes up and the majority opinion doesn't seem right and we're going to have to switch and the minority opinion is better. Times change, so we have to memorize everything. So, yeah, we don't throw anything away. You just keep adding to it. Um, so it's not like, you know, you're right, you're wrong. It's, you know, we, it's all right, and that, but we have to choose how to behave, so this is what makes sense to us today, that things could change. So, I mean, that's what keeps Judaism fresh, uh, intellectually fresh. I mean, behaviorally, it gets locked up. But, well, yeah. you know, when it comes to study and, and philosophy and, and theology, I mean, it's very fluid.
2: Well, that's what I love about it. It it has yeah, such a richness. It it has a richness to it. And it's a richness that allows you to to let it be flexible so you can you can you can you can look at all sides of it and and sideways and up and down and and get a message any way you look at it because there's truth everywhere and you know, some of the truths may be ones that will give you an aha moment. And I love those aha moments. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, my. <laughs> Didn't yeah, see that right, one coming. Right,
3: right,
0: right.
2: But, yeah, but so. No, I, just, just to be,
3: just to be fair, I mean, because, okay, I mean, I, I sort of.
2: Oh, he's, he's being fair and he decided I bet he hit hit the button by accident. He seems to have taken a short break, so I must tell you that that this book was so enlightening for me. I'm I'm not going to. I'm going to add a lot of it to the richness of my own um, spiritual philosophies because it wakes you up. It takes you into new levels of understanding of yourself. It allows you you to question some things and and look at things differently and the more and more deeply that i i read the the more i understood that that here was a culture that that i didn't really know as well as i would have liked to here's a a people that that had a richness of material and wisdom that um you know i i had i had not paid attention to and I'm really sorry I hadn't because there's 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 so much there, and as soon as he comes back, we'll get into some of the other things that are there because um, they 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 stretched me in ways that I was very, very um, delighted to go in and open doors that that gave me insight into aspects of of life and how to live it, and that these people were really you know their their cause in life was to be a blessing to to everyone uh, to to be a blessing to live as a blessing and i i felt very strongly that that i had probably misunderstood as i said before i i grew up in a very traditional orthodox jewish community and so um so my understanding was was um, broadened greatly by reading this book. Welcome back.
3: Yeah, I'm back. I'm disconnected somehow. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. Nice Barbara, <laughs> can you hear me now?
3: Yeah, yeah. I don't know what, what happened. Else? We got disconnected. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know where we left sense. off, but Yeah, well I don't know what the sentence was, so sorry about that. <laughs>
2: That's but okay.
3: We got we got disconnected.
2: So 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 I think that what I what I really One want to open open people's minds to our understanding is that that Judaism is, as we said before we went on the air, it's it's more than a religion and a culture, and I mean it's it's so much more and greater than just Judaism.
3: Yeah, I mean, my, my teacher Mortify Kaplan called Judaism a civilization, and okay. by which she meant that it's it includes multiple cultures. I mean, it's not even most people in, my, in the United States when they think of Jews, they think of European Jews, and that's just a small one, one slice of of Judaism. There's um, you know, uh, Jews from India. There's Jews from Africa. There's Jews from Arabic countries. Spanish Jews. We have multiple languages. Um, you know, there's Yiddish, there's Hebrew, there's uh, Judeo Arabic. So you know, there's there's so it's, it's multilingual, multicultural, multiracial. Uh, we have different cuisines. You know, if you're looking for one thing, and it's hard to find one thing that ties all these uh, elements of Jewish civilization together, I would say, I would say it's the story of the Exodus that, you know, it's not historically accurate that all Jews were enslaved in Egypt. I mean, that's not even remotely true, but we don't even know if any Jews were enslaved in Egypt, but certainly not all Jews, but the, the story we tell ourselves is that we were enslaved in Egypt and then we were liberated uh, from Egypt and then we wandered around in Sinai and we ended up in Canaan. And, you know, and then we took over Canaan and started our you know, our uh, evolution as, as a nation state and all the rest of that. But so we tell that story and the story is incorporated into the Hebrew scripture. So I guess you'd say since all Jews... From all these diverse cultures, read that text. That probably is what ties us together. At least that's. I like that idea. that we're we're a people of that story, a people of the text. <coughs> Though, I know a lot of Jews who would say, "No, that's ridiculous. That most Jews don't know the text, so you can't say we're tied together by the text." So who knows? But it's a very diverse well, thing, and and religion is only a part of it because. My guess is most Jews. and You can start, you know, with, with you know, regardless of what's, what group we're talking about, Charedi, Spanish, Judeo—I mean, the, the the Jews from Mizrahi, the, the Eastern Jews, the Arabic Jews, and whatever Iraqi Jews, whatever Jews we're talking about. I think most Jews are probably not religious, primarily. They, they probably identify in some other way. So you can't even say, I mean, Judaism includes a religion that's called Judaism, but there's no one way of understanding that. And many, 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 if not most Jews don't even, that's not even the center of who they are as Jews. So it's a, a difficult thing. If, you, if you're a Christian and you say, well, I'm a Christian because I believe a certain thing, and if I didn't believe that thing, I wouldn't be a Christian, That doesn't apply to Jews, because Jews can say, "Eh, "Ah, I'm a Jew because my mother was Jewish, or I grew up in a Jewish community and I do X, Y, and Z." But no, I don't believe anything. You know what I mean? It's just it's so difficult to to uh, categorize Jews in that Christian way of oh, it's belief that's what makes me X. That's what makes me a Christian.
2: Yeah, I got it. Can't
3: can't really say that. Can't really say that about Jews.
2: Although. Um I I did find that that it it feels like the purpose of their life, the drive of their life, is being a blessing and, and I, I got that in a lot of places in the book that that it's is part that of me? their <laughs>
0: Yeah.
3: It should be it should be, Barbara. I don't know. I don't know if it is or not. But yeah, you know, there's this part of the story where uh, God calls to Abraham and Sarah. They're called Avram and Sarai before they get the full Uh Abraham and Sarah name change. And God says, you know, get out of Dodge. Just leave your house, leave your country, leave your kin, uh, get out of your parents' house and go to a place I will show you. And then blah, 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 blah. And then this is Genesis 12 verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 3, God tells you why you're going, and then God says, basically, what I want you to do is to be, and there's different ways to translate the, the verse, but I like the translation that says, you'll be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, and I like the, uh-huh. all the families of the earth, and it says all of them. It doesn't say Jewish families, because there are no Jews yet. Abraham and Sarah were the first one. so you'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And in my reading, all, all the families means human and otherwise. That to me is the mission of, that's the call to, to Abraham and Sarah, so that's the call to all Jews, that ultimately we're to be a mission, we're to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. I'm not saying we, li- we are. That's, that's the, to me, that's the mission we're supposed to live up to. I'm not saying we do that even remotely, but that's the call.
2: Well, it's, you know, it makes sense to everyone that the purpose of being here is to be a blessing, to be um, a, a loving, contributing member of society to help others and and to be, you know, we it's called family of man because we are a family, though... You know, you, like with most families, you, you don't you like everybody. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you'd, you'd
3: think so. You'd hope so. You know, one of the things and, that, you know, you know, it's like you said earlier, the Bible's written by different people, and they all have different agendas. Um, yeah. But if you look at Genesis 1, you get the first creation story. Uh, it's not the first one that's written, but, it's it's you know, it's the first one you read in the book. And in Genesis 1, people are created after everything else. And everything else is mm-hmm. flourishing. You know, God keeps saying, oh, it's good, it's good, everything's going great. And almost like an afterthought, God says, oh, let's make humans in our image and after our likeness. But there's no point to humans. There's, there's just, we have nothing to do. The earth is flourishing. There's animals, and they're doing fine, and there's fish, and they're doing fine, and there's birds, and they're doing fine, and the trees, and and, everything is perfect. So God creates people, and to me it's a story, not history, but in the story God creates people, and then what do you do with them? So God says, oh, be fruitful and multiply and run the place. You know, have dominion over the animals and the fish and nature and all of that. So God creates people to manage a system that doesn't need managing. And so we ruin it. In Genesis 2, which is actually most likely the older story, even though it comes second in the book. In Genesis 2, it's a very different creation story. You don't get the the six days of creation. In Genesis 2, it says nothing is growing because two things are missing. There's no water, and there's no caretaker. So the first thing that God does in the second story uh, is cause water to come up from the earth, like springs, and everything gets uh, watered that way. And then God takes the damp earth, and God creates the first human being, literally from the earth. And and you know, if, if you know the Hebrew... Uh, the, the word for earth is Adama, A-D-A-M-A-H. And God creates the first human, uh, Adam, A-D-A-M, from the A-D-A-M-A-H. So, you know, in, in English, sadly, it says God creates man from the earth, and you don't get the connection. But it should be God creates the earthling from the earth. So... Uh-huh. And then God, what's the purpose? not to have dominion, but to serve and to protect and and the word to it's like to be the, the gardener, to be the caretaker. so God creates water and God creates the gardener, and then everything's going to grow and the job of the human is to serve life, and the word that's used for serve is. is same word, I won't bother with the Hebrew, but it's the same word that's used for worship in Hebrew, so that your act of serving life is an act of divine worship. So when I care for my neighbor, it's an act of worshiping God. When I care for animals, when I care for nature, when I, you know, when I'm a blessing to all the families of the earth, human and otherwise, I'm, that's my way to worship God. I mean, it's all built into the Bible, if we read it properly. And and you have a choice as human beings. We can either be Genesis 1 and dominate and ruin the place. And we just learned from the latest study, we've got nine years to get our act together and we won't fix it. So we've taken Genesis 1 as our model, at least in the West, and it's infected the entire planet. So we've, we've done the domination, taken the domination road and we're just destroying everything. Or... We could have followed Genesis 2 and become caretakers, which we now know is a smarter way to go, but it may be too late. Um, but whether it's too late or not, you still have that choice. Um, and, I, and this book, the Judaism Without Tribalism, is a call for Jews anyway, the Genesis 2 choice. But I think everyone needs to make the Genesis 2 choice to be caretakers well, rather I- than dominators.
2: I think that that especially today in in these times of um, turmoil and, and upheaval and stuff like that 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 many people I am finding are looking for you know what's the purpose of my life why am I here what's you know what is what is my purpose and I I think you've got it nailed down it's it's to it's to protect and it's to enrich and it's to You know, serve um, a higher cause, and and in doing, serving the higher cause, you're you're protecting and you're serving uh, your fellow man. And I think that that so many people just, you know, it's like, don't be ridiculous. That's that's silly and stupid and and too simple. And and the reality is, I think it is very simple. It's a matter of loving. And, and, yeah. and taking care of. And, you know, just recently I was talking to people about, you know, this. how can I afford to buy presents for Christmas and stuff like that. And my comment back was the, the most precious thing you have is time. Why don't you just give time to people you love and care and spend time listening to them and being with them because that's the most precious thing you've gotten. And if you share that, there's no greater gift. And... You know, they just look at me like I'm crazy, but it's true. Um, I don't believe we're here to gather toys and compare bank accounts. I think we're here to learn something, and I think we're here to learn compassion and love. Barbara, what are you, communist?
3: (laughs) (laughs) What what is wrong with you, Barbara? This is a capitalist country. You're here to buy stuff. And, oh, and know, buy more stuff <laughs> no, my, But that, my that grandson, has no meaning
2: I, I, I no, well, when my friend, mother just If you're
3: that. seven years old
2: My grandson just
3: asked me yesterday He goes, when's Hanukkah? And, and I told him And he said, he says it's eight days, right? And I said, yeah That's like eight <laughs> nights of presents, right? And
0: I said, yeah He goes, okay, I
2: can't wait, I can't
0: wait
2: <laughs> Oh my goodness <laughs> Well, I I can well, remember yeah. some of my friends that when I when I said, you know, you get eight days of presents and somebody said, Yeah, I get socks one night, I get a shirt right, the other right. night
0: <laughs> that, that's, that's how it
3: works. But he doesn't even care. <laughs> oh socks. You know, if it has a dinosaur on it, <laughs> he's very happy.
2: <laughs> ah, well <laughs> Oh, to be young. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think, you know, you brought up the, the the, you, you brought up Hanukkah, and you have a section in your book about the menorah and i I know that there is a a given text that is usually read at the lighting of each of the candles, and you have put your own spin on the text, which I think is beautiful and you know, I'm gonna. I, I really am going to go out and, and find myself a menorah, and and use your phrases because what it does is it gives it, 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 it asks a question, and it's a good question, and you can spend a day meditating on it and answering it internally, and then you get another question the next next night, and it's a wonderful way of taking stock of where you are within yourself at this point in time.
3: I think that's what all holidays are for, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. You know, that's at their heart. They're all about asking you to ask questions uh, about yourself, your life, and, and how. what are you living for and how's it going. Um, yeah. So I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I think... Um, you know, if, if anybody could pick up these holidays. We have this thing, um, what's it called, cultural appropriation. You know, okay, you're not a Jew, Barbara. You can't do Hanukkah. You know, my feeling is, are you kidding? If this speaks to you, go do Hanukkah. Go get a menorah. I mean, it's ridiculous to say, no, she's not Jewish. You can't do it. Um, and and the same would go if you're Jewish and you want to celebrate Christmas or you want to celebrate uh you know, Hindu, uh, Diwali, or, you know, I mean, I could, I, I, I have such, I wouldn't call it envy. I have such respect for my, uh, friends or imams who are imams who do Ramadan, who fast for the, during the day of during, during the day in the month throughout the month of Ramadan. I mean, I can barely get through one day of Yom Kippur and that's just basically (laughs) skipping breakfast and lunch. To do that every day, uh, that just seems too intense for me. But, um, you know, I was once, uh, I don't know if it was in the United States or maybe it was in Turkey. I don't know where I was, but I was studying with the Sufi teachers and they were talking about Ramadan and they said, and this is not really necessarily a mystic thing. This may be more mainstream lot, <clears throat> But they said, yeah, you don't eat. But the real fast is fasting from anger, fasting from gossiping, fasting from negativity. And every day you try to uh, live the day without those negative behaviors. And if you can do that for a month, You might find it easier to then do it for another month and then a third month. That's the real work of these holidays. You know, like Passover time, the way I grew up, I grew up in an Orthodox home. The big thing was you don't eat anything with leaven in it or not just eat, so, you know, lipstick. My mom would have to get special kosher for Passover lipstick because her non-Passover lipstick had, some product in it that was made with leaven. I don't know anything about how lipstick is made. But you had to get lipstick <laughs> that was kosher for Passover. And 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 it was all about it was all about that. So um all the food that you bought, all the stuff that you used had to be certified that it was it was kosher for Passover. But the and and I do that, I still do that during the week of Passover. <clears throat> but the meaning of the leaven product was so – we were never taught when I was a kid why. We just didn't do it because right? they ate matzah, and so matzah has no leaven, so we get rid of leaven throughout the house and throughout the week. But the, the meaning of it is so much more interesting. In those days, ancient times, you leavened bread by using sour dough. And so the leaven symbolizes sourness. And what you're really trying to do is you spend a week trying to identify and eliminate the sourness in your life. And every time you don't eat leaven, you're supposed to be reminded, okay, I'm not eating this piece of bread because it has leaven in it. But where else am I ingesting sourness? Where am I putting sourness out into the world today? I should not do that. It's Passover. Where can I stop, you know, making the world and myself sour? And that's the real work of Passover, not just avoiding bagels and, uh, you know, pie. So it makes the holiday so much more interesting. And you could do that for every holiday, for every religion. You're humanizing it and spiritualizing it and making it relevant to your life in the moment that the holiday is actually happening, and every year it's going to be new and fresh, because you're wrestling with these issues perennially.
2: Well, I think that's that's the one thing that that I have found has run rampant through society these days is that you know these are holidays that that are meant to be of a spiritual nature, and most people well, okay, they go to they go to a church on christmas eve and you know it's celebrating the birth of christ which didn't happen in december but um but it's it's there's more to the story there's more to the purpose and you know what did that mean to to me today you know you know and 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 so that they're not they're not getting to the the real meat of the purpose of the holiday and it, that does bother me greatly, because there's so much more there to to look at, to apply to your life, to make adjustments to your life, and to celebrate your life, and to help you help other people too. I think that that these holidays are meant to get you to a place where you are you are more compassionate towards your fellow man, and I I'm not really yeah. seeing that happen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe
2: maybe maybe I don't That's get out true. enough. I don't know, but you know, I do have the TV on from time to time, and it, it sure doesn't look it, and and it's a little scary. Yeah. Um, but but you did yeah. there there yeah. is one there, there's one holiday that I want I would love you to talk about because um, the year of jubilee I this I like a lot, um, and and it, it's. It's not one that's new to me, but, but some of the intricacies of it are new to me. So I knew, that, I knew what a year of Jubilee was. It was every seven years. But, but what it meant and what they did, if they really were adhering to the rules, was pretty impressive.
3: Yeah, so, so you know, every seven years you have a sabbatical year, which is when you let the land lay fallow. But yes. every seven sets of seven years is this jubilee year, where you let the society go back to its original equilibrium. Maybe you might say it's
0: you know
3: the way I always explained it was it's like a monopoly game where you sit down to play monopoly and everybody gets two hundred dollars. <throat>
2: the like, let's go, 100%. yeah,
3: right, and. At the end of the game, some people have, you know, hotels on Boardwalk and park, and park Avenue, right? I guess that's what it's called. I don't remember. But, you know, you have the, the big expensive property, Marvin Gardens, I think is, is that, that series of properties. And, and you win, and someone else has just got crap or they're stuck in jail, and they've got nothing, and they lose. But at the end of the game, everybody puts all the hotels away, and all the money goes back into the pot. And if you want to play again, everybody starts with the same $200, and you get to go around again. So the same idea with Jubilee is for 49 years, everyone starts out the same, and then for 49 years, you play this game of uh, how how can I succeed? How much money can I make? How much property can I own? Um, How much wealth can I accrue? And, but at the end, and, and some people are going to win, and some people are going to lose. Some people are going to have to sell their ancestral farms. This is an agricultural society. They're going to have to sell themselves into servitude, um, you know, all, all the things that can happen to people. Some people are going to win, some people are going to lose. But at the end of 49 years, everybody goes back. they get their lands back, they get their, their wealth back. all the debts are forgiven. And you start again, everyone gets 200 bucks, and you start all over again. So it allows for winners and losers, but only up to the 49-year period. So you can't have this massive um, disequilibrium of money and power that goes on generation after generation, because it it can only run for two generations. So it's this very radical idea. Um, I don't know if that's what you're thinking of.
2: Yeah, when I you're was, tough, and when, you're, when, when they were speaking of it, so everybody has to start it at, at the same time. Who who determines when the starting point is and when the 49th year is?
0: Yeah,
3: that's the rabbis. They decided the calendar. <clears throat> so we just have it. Uh-huh. So no one does it anymore. That's the thing. No one does it. So, you know, one of the things that I do is rather than throw the holiday out because, I mean, first of all, it only happens in the land of Israel, and there's, you can't actually run a modern state this way. So um, no. Israel finds a way around it, which is necessary, but sort of sad. But um, I had this experience. I was lecturing at a educator's conference, Jewish educator's conference, years and years ago, and I'm sitting in the cafeteria And this young woman comes up and says, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. So she sat down next to me, and she tells me this really harrowing story. And her story is that her parents were both survivors of the Holocaust.
2: Oh, my. And
3: they, um, her dad, I mean, they survived the Holocaust as little kids. And then they got married. They met, and they got married. And they had uh, this young woman with their daughter. And her father, uh, her father's sister, died in a concentration camp. And her dad, when, I don't know if I can make this straight, the, the woman who was talking to me, when she was born, her father named her after his murdered sister,
0: sister that was killed uh-huh. by
3: the Nazis. And he believed that his daughter was now, in a sense, the reincarnated soul of his sister. And so they gave her his sister's name. They gave her, she had to, you know, they told her what her favorite color was. Everything he could remember about his little sister, she had to embody that. And and she did. I mean, she didn't know any better. And then she Uh said, She started to rebel, and, I mean, she was an adult when she spoke to me, and she was struggling with her relationship with her parents because she felt this, she couldn't carry the burden of being this dead aunt anymore. So, you know, I said to her,
1: and I don't know why
3: I said it. It wasn't like I'm brilliant. It just came to me, so I take no credit for this. And I said to her, well, how old are you? And she says, I'm just about to turn 49. And I said, oh, <laughs> this is your jubilee year. And I told her about the jubilee, and I said, look, for 49 years, you carried this debt that either you owed or your father owed or however you want to understand it. But you carried your dad's debt to his deceased sister. And you owed, for whatever reason we'll say, you owed this debt to your aunt and to your dad and to your mom, and you carried it. But at 49, you're free. And that's what you're experiencing, is this spiritual transformation, psychic freeing that's happening in your being. And it's coming out as this need to reject or to rebel or to you know, free yourself from, from the burden that your parents have placed upon you, and that this is, this is your rebirth and that you can explain it to your parents or not, but you have to go with this. This is not I'm a bad daughter thing. This is I'm coming into my own. I'm just going to discover who I really am. And I no longer have a – I don't don't owe anything to my dad or to his sister anymore. I've paid that debt, and, and I don't have to carry that burden or feel guilty about putting it aside now because I've done it for the 49 years and now I'm going to be free. And and she was just I you know I never talked to her again, but she was so liberated by that that understanding of wow. the reality.
2: Wow. Well, you so, you set her free, yeah.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I I told her that and she set herself free, but but um I mean, that's the power of these stories. I mean, you know, I, mean I, I, I appreciate the fact that you, you found the Jubilee so powerful. you know, we're in, you know, we're going to be in the Hanukkah Christmas season. And yes. we talked a little bit about Hanukkah. And, you know, but most of us, I imagine most of your listeners are going to be celebrating Christmas. But if they're not celebrating the birth of the Christ within, they're not celebrating Christmas. They're just true. getting sucked in. They're, they're, they're celebrating something else. Or they're getting sucked into the marketing of, of Christmas-based capitalism. And I love Christmas, and I love giving presents, and I mean all of that. So go buy all you want. I don't care. But if Christmas doesn't include the birthing of the, of the Christ within – as a radical challenge to the, you know, the, well, I don't, I don't want to overdo the, the metaphor here, but a radical challenge to the, 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 the powers that be, the, the Roman emperor <laughs> of your life, the, 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 the ego or whatever it is. I mean, that's the glory of Christmas is that this baby is the catalyst to bring down an empire. And, 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 you, and even though the baby grows up to be crucified, you can't, it doesn't, doesn't stop the, the revolution. So it's this opportunity for radical freedom, even as it goes to Eastern. and that's another thing we could talk about, but can you dare to birth that Christ within? Can you make yourself? Can you can you enter into the kind of poverty that the manger represents that allows you to birth the Christ within? And it's all Christian mystical stuff that I'm spouting here. But can that happen for you? Um, yeah. And and I'm, and that's what that's what the holiday is for. Advent is the time to sort of get ready to to embrace that inner poverty, and you know by that I mean you know becoming letting go of all the ideas that you've got, all the boxes that we were talking about before, until you're just, you have nothing. You're just in that that, that poor state. And then give birth to the baby. Um, And then see what happens. I mean, to let the revolution, the spiritual revolution happen within you and then ultimately around you. I mean, it's a great holiday if people were brave oh, enough is. to let it happen.
2: Yeah, and and to to have that level of consciousness be birthed within is is certainly yeah. a very magical experience. There's there's no doubt about it. Um, don't don't recommend anybody going walking on water unless it's frozen. But you know, there <laughs> is that that awareness that insight that seeing the beauty in others that you might not have recognized before there's there's there is absolute joy in that kind of of experience and and you're right i i think that um I, I, one year a long time ago um my 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 thing to myself was i'm not going to buy Any presents for Christmas for anyone, I'm going to make them. And I found that making gifts for people for me was a very rich experience. It it meant hundreds of hours spent focusing on a person making something for them that I thought that they would enjoy. And, you know, whether it was writing something, whether it was knitting something or crocheting something or cooking something or whatever – I made sure that that my gifts were of a personal nature. That I had spent time and focusing on them when I created them, and you know, aside from you know, I, it, it really, it, I, I would love to say I was noble enough to just think it, but you know, poverty was was the real impetus that got me going on this. But I felt so rich at the end of, of the Christmas holiday because. I felt that I had truly given of myself, rather than putting something on a credit card that somebody would, you know, kind of just shove in a drawer and never, re- never think about. So it 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 was it was a fun experience. I, I buy presents for people now and stuff like that, but that one year I was at a point where I had nothing to give but me, and and it was probably one of the richest Christmases I ever experienced.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I can understand
2: that. But uh I and I think so many people get carried away with the commercialism that they forget the purpose. It's it's a time of light, it's a time of following a star. It's it's a time of, of reminding yourself of the light that is within. And and you know, the Christmas story is a beautiful story, there's no doubt about it. But but there's more to the the meaning of the holiday than just the Christmas story, and 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 it's the same with with Hanukkah. I mean, theoretically, they say it's the story of the uh, the oil in the lamp burning the eight days for the rededication of the temple that had been destroyed and then re, re rebuilt, and you know. That's a cool story, too, but but there's more to the story. There's a symbology there that is so important that we get so carried away with the story, we don't think about the meaning behind it. Yeah. And, one of, yeah, one of the
3: things I like about the Hanukkah story is, I mean, you know, these things are probably more myth and legend than, than history, but one of the things I like about that story mm. is they could have, I mean, they won the war, so there was no pressure to rededicate the temple that week. They could have waited a few days and pressed more oil, so, but they didn't. So what, what I liked about it was they decided, yeah, we don't have enough for the eight days, but let's just do it anyway. So to me, it's the, it's the chutzpah, the daring to just go with what you got, and let's just see how far we can push this as opposed to waiting until it's a sure thing. So, you know, part of the message is it's It's the dark time of the year. It's winter, or at least it is in, the, you know, in, in Israel and uh-huh. North America. So it's the dark time of the year. You don't know what's coming next. You don't have enough light necessarily to get through, you know, metaphorically. To, you're not going to have enough light to get to the, the springtime. You don't know. But we're going to take the light we've got, whatever that means, you know, in people's hearts and people's minds. We're going to take the light we've got and we're going to burn as brightly as we can and just bring as much light into the world as we can for as long as we can. And in the story, it lasts as long as necessary. So it's like just go ahead and burn and be as bright as you can (laughs) and don't worry about if you have enough because you'll never have enough. Just go and do it. Not not a Nike story. Not just do it, but you know, still, don't don't yeah take take a risk. Don't worry about don't don't wait until you're certain. There is no certainty. Just go ahead and do the best you can with what you got.
2: Well, that's true. That's and
3: true. get a pair of socks.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, a tradition that that people put candles in their windows. And at this time of year, and it's the, you know, the dark time of the year, and I asked somebody, you know, I said, do you know why you put that in the window? And they said, oh, yeah, it's Christmas. And I said, you know, I hate to break it to you, but the candle in the window is what during colonial times they would keep it kept Keep a light lit in the window to to help people find their way home, and that's what the candles are for. And and you know, symbology, you know, symbol wise, um, certainly, the, it symbolizes finding the light within, finding a way back home to source. I mean, there there are a lot of things, but you know, it has nothing to do with Christmas, actually. So um, yeah, I mean,
3: you're supposed to put the Hanukkah. Hanukkiah, the Hanukkah menorah in the window, so uh, facing the street, so people can see the Hanukkah lights. Um, this is, and I, I was never told that so people could find their way home. I was always told it was an act of saying, you know, Jews live here. Um, oh, but you know, where okay. I live, where I, where I live, I don't. I'm trying to think if there's any other Jews for miles around. I mean, my my kids live miles away. I don't know if there's any Jews between us and them. So oh you know, where, we there's no Christmas tree at our house. There's no Christmas lights, but uh, we do have the Hanukkah menorah in the window. That's that's lit, you know, at night.
2: Well, it's a beautiful symbol, and and the the different. Um, symbology that you put with each of the candles, I think, in your book was just was as impressive as it could possibly be, and questions that, um, I, I understand that they're, they're your questions, and they're the questions that you ask, but isn't it wonderful that you have the flexibility to ask whatever questions you want?
3: Yeah, right, And and it's sort of a way of making, you know, in this case, we're talking about Hanukkah, but making the holiday your own. And, uh-huh. and every year, thinking, well, what are, the, what are the eight questions that need to be asked in my life or in my family's life? Or, if, you know, let everyone ask their own question in a family. What are the, how interesting to hear, if you're brave enough to share them out loud, what are the questions you're asking yourself this year? You know, what are the eight questions that need to be answered Maybe before the the new year ends, or or maybe as the new year is coming. What are the what are the eight questions that are gonna help shape who you become? And in, in you know, mixing the Jewish year, the Jewish calendar of Hanukkah with the secular New Year calendar. But you know, ben, that's an
0: interesting way to look at it. Um, what
2: are the questions? Yeah. What are the questions that are gonna launch you into the new year, and help you yeah, to be a better yeah. person? Right?
3: Right, right. You said it better than I did. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I had longer to think about it, <laughs> but it—it it just to <laughs> me, it—it it really woke up another type of tradition that that uh, it applies to everyone. It's you know, well, yes, yeah. it's a Jewish man, it's a menorah and all of that, but but it's it makes for a richer holiday, I think. Um, I know that at, at Thanksgiving dinner, my my family, um, my sons, my son and his wife and his children and and her parents and me, um, at at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, under our plates are questions that pertain to the to the last year about you know how have you changed your life and what have you done that makes you richer oh, that's and beautiful. I mean. And and so after we eat, um, we we go around the table and answer the question, and they're all different. They're different for everyone, and it's always that's
0: fantastic.
3: It's always
2: it's it's a wonderful tradition, and you know, and they don't let you cheat. They don't put the questions under until your plate is full, so you have to eat your way through. But (laughs) so you don't really have you don't really have time to think. (laughs) But it's 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 a wonderful way of of kind of doing a little bit of of re, you know review and okay what has yeah. been important to me what is the what what is the magic in my life that he, that's here that wasn't here last year and how did how did that happen and um, it's it's always it's it's wonderful to be reflective and then to to focus on how do you use that reflection to um, to sort of push you forward um you know looking into the past is you know there's nothing you can do about it but if you're looking to the future you create your own reality by your perception of it so how are you going to change that perception to make it richer and more joyful and 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 help you to um be a better person all ways around
3: yeah i think that's that's beautiful
2: yeah, what, you know, what people
3: would go ahead? I was just going to say, people would do that, whatever their holidays are, you know, take them as opportunities to ask deep, ask and answer deep questions. I mean, you know, who who would not look forward to the holidays?
2: Well, yeah, and and it it's just um, when when you you don't. Usually, people gather at, at holidays and funerals, and if you if you celebrate during the holidays in the right way, the funerals are are an easier are easier to get through. You know, it, it's it's definitely a time of of great sadness for sure. But you know, you you had mentioned you had mentioned to that girl. I wanted to go back to the what you said to that girl because I didn't think that it was reincarnation was part of the philosophy
3: in judaism yeah 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 i mean it's it's um you know judaism has no official what happens after you die but there are there reincarnation is an option um there's nothing official there's a a reincarnation tradition it's not it's not the same as in like Hinduism where you can reincarnate over and over and over and over and over again. If I remember correctly, I think uh, I know it sounds funny, but I think it says you get three reincarnations, and if you haven't figured it out by then, you come back as a rock. you're so oh You God. come back as a rock, and and the only way you can start the cycle again. Is if a wise person sits on you, something like that. <laughs> you no.
0: Know?
3: Oh I mean, my
2: goodness.
3: B- because Judaism doesn't have a fixed theology, no one takes these things literally. So you can make of that what you will. It's not like anyone goes, "Oh my God, I'm going to come back as a rock." So no, no one takes that literally. But um, okay. But yeah, I mean that's, and even if it wasn't. Um, even it, I mean that is part of Judaism, some strand somewhere. But even if it wasn't, that's what the God, the this woman's dad latched onto. So uh-huh. you know, for him, it was as Jewish as it needed to be. It was just what he believed uh, that his daughter was his, his aunt reborn.
2: There, there was well. there was another thing in your book that that I, I am now. I'm just pulling. <clears throat> Is there a belief that you only have so many words you're allowed in a lifetime?
3: Now, that's a teaching from the Baal Shem Tov in the 1700s. The, um, yeah, the Baal Shem Toh, its a it's a teaching of his. It's not a, again, okay. Judaism doesn't have a fixed, you know, this, this is true. But he had this teaching uh, to make a point, and his teaching was, that every person is born with a fixed number of words to speak in a lifetime. Uh, and when you've spoken your last allotted number, that's when you die. And you're not the, the, the words themselves are up to you. It's the number that, that is fixed at your birth. And And his message was, since you only have a fixed number of words to speak, before you say anything, make sure this is a word you want to die on. Just, it might be your last number word. So, you know, if you want to die on you jerk, <laughs> that could be your last <laughs> two words, as opposed to love you. Which way do you want to go? So, that was the message. I don't know if he meant it meant us to take it literally, but I, I like it. It's a great teaching. I like to teach it.
2: It's a great teaching. I wish some of the politicians believed in that. Um,
0: yeah.
2: Uh, it would it would make debates and things like that a lot shorter. Um, no, I just I I just I found that 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 your book carried yeah promise and 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 but but for the most part it it opened up the door to there is such richness here. Um, it it just feels like it isn't taught appropriately. I mean, it, it's, it's, you say Judaism without tribalism. What do you mean by tribalism? Do you mean the religious aspect of it, or what, what do you mean by the tribalism?
3: So what I have in mind is, I mean, Jews are a tribal people. We're, we're like
2: uh-huh.
3: you know, Cherokee and you know, Chippewa. We're, we're a tribal people, and I'm very comfortable with that. That, that, makes, that does not bother me at all tribalism is when you get to the point where my tribe is better than your tribe. That, Ah, to me, is a mistake. So that's tribalism. But um, when you say that it's not taught properly, I mean, I I share that opinion. I mean, that's a bias. That's my bias. I think it isn't taught properly. I think what happened in my case, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 70s. So I was born in 1951. It was just six years after the end of World War II, the end of, of the Holocaust. We were just learning about the death camps and we're still, so many decades later, you'd think, you know, we're still in, in a state of PTSD over the Holocaust. Yeah. And, and so, so I was raised in a European Jewish environment that was really reeling from, devastated by and reeling from the murder of six million Jews. And the response of our rabbis was to fixate and this is just my guess. I'm just this is my sense of it. Was to fixate on the outer form of Judaism. Let's get make. Let's make sure that everybody follows the rules. We don't have the luxury of doing the spiritual work now. Let's just get everybody on the same page with the rules, and then when we get the numbers back up and everyone's got the following the tradition, and uh, then. Maybe we'll go and talk about these deeper spiritual things. That that was the community I grew up in. It was orthodox, but it was all about the form and not about the spirit. Uh-huh. And so they they didn't teach us anything that, in my estimation, they never taught me anything I could grow into as I got older, as I started asking questions, as I started... <laughs> Oh, having having even as a teenager, having a desire for spiritual, you know, having spiritual questions and looking for spiritual experience, reading books about Swamis and um, Uh taking meditation classes from Buddhists and things like that. Where was that in Judaism? And it wasn't. Uh, I had one rabbi who was interested in this stuff, and he was fired from my congregation because they didn't understand him. Um, so so they were, they were, and I'm not even criticizing them. It was maybe legitimate because they were in this time of, of dealing with this horrible tragedy. So they were doing the best they could to hold things together, focused on form. But a lot of people were looking for something else in the 60s and the 70s and The Jewish establishment did not have it. And so people like me went elsewhere. We went to Buddhism. We went to Hinduism. We went to Sufism. We went to, you know, wherever we went. Um,
0: Uh
3: Today, things are different. Today, a lot of rabbis, um,
0: uh, because
3: they come out of the 60s and the 70s, and they were interested in that stuff. A lot of rabbis come now with some background in meditation, some background in Kabbalah, some interest in in spiritual practice, and can do a deeper, can teach you the the form, but can also teach you the hard work that goes with it. Um, Uh So it's not just outward stuff. So things may be changing. I I don't know. I mean, I'm long retired, but um, it's, you know, the... the, (laughs) My guess is the, the Jewish community that you were you know, adjacent to when you were growing up was one that was focused on the form and trying to deal with the Holocaust. Uh, but now I, it, it, it is changing. I, mean, I have so many rabbi friends who are certainly as well-educated in, in spiritual, mystical things as I am. Um, But they had to do it on their own. It wasn't that we learned this stuff in in rabbinical school or yeshiva or seminary. We had to go seek out the the mystic teachers. And I was lucky. I mean, I found uh, Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi, who was a great um, Uh, mystic from uh, the old country. You know, from uh, he escaped the Holocaust as a kid and came here escape the Nazis. but
2: isn't, the, isn't so that the case up. you know yeah. is isn't that the case of 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 everything you know when the student is ready the teacher appears
3: yeah yeah I think so i mean I think um, I think that's true I mean otherwise you won't if you're not ready <laughs> you won't even notice the teacher being there or well, that's
0: i mean I, true. I
3: brought i I once brought Reb zalman. Uh, to my synagogue uh, thinking, you know, if they like me, they will love him. And, you know, he came with the side curls and the beard. I have a beard, but, you know, he he just came right out of central casting from a rabbi and fiddler on the roof. You know, he was that kind of guy. guy. And and he was brilliant. And he's a loving man. And, And I, you know, he was my teacher, so everyone was nice to him. But when he left, and was and he, he had gone back to where he was staying, my my people came to me and said, "Never bring him here again. We hated this." <laughs> oh my! What they hated, what he he scared them by the way he looked. You know, because what he taught was what I taught, because I learned it from him. But he yeah. looked. I looked. I looked like them. He looked like their great grandparents, <laughs> who died ah. in the Holocaust, and and it scared them. They said, "No, we don't want that. We don't want that. That's the Hasidic stuff. We don't. We're not interested in that at all. We're not Orthodox. We're very liberal. We don't want side curls, and we don't want to look at side curls. <laughs> they were really, oh dear. They were very <laughs> intimidated. They were very intimidated by him. Um, so much so they, they couldn't hear him. They didn't even know what he was. They didn't listen. They couldn't. They couldn't open their their their, their hearts were so closed that their minds were completely clogged, or their hearts were so
2: oh, clogged
3: that their minds were completely closed.
2: That's <clears> very <throat> that was sad. Really
3: <laughs> yeah, it is sad. No, it was I very educational for me because I realized, wow, I, I had no idea he would have that response.
2: Well, I, I, um, I think I, I, I think I beat you age-wise because I I was born in the '40s, and so um, what I did grow up with was, yes, very orthodox Jews—Jews Jews that walked to temple. They did not drive. They, you know, they were um, serious people, and and so serious about their. Traditions and their teachings that they were protective of them almost as though you know they didn't if they shared them they'd lose them type stuff so um oh there's always that sure sort of a
3: fear of the of the stranger too
2: yeah and and yet i was i it was very you know i I was a child and and it was I was interested and I really wanted to learn and it was you know i was shut out because i didn't fit in their box and you know i still yeah, i still right. played with their kids and everything but um it wasn't appropriate for them to share any of their wisdom with me so i was i i had my own box that i had to fit into which i didn't fit in so you know i i did as you yeah. did i went looking and 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 so this is an area where um where i i had Adore the Old Testament, and I love the stories, and I love the symbology. Um, you can kind of, the New Testament, you know, just read the red stuff, and you're okay. Um, but but the Old Testament is so rich, and it has such wonderful flavor to it that um, that's where I've had years of pleasure just going through the the Old Testament, and and speaking with people that have written about it and about the characters and and, and everything, I just, uh, it's a part of religious spirituality that, that I have been eating up of late. So this all fits right in. It's just, uh, it, it was a joy to read the book, and it was a joy to even, as I said earlier, I don't normally read the appendixes, but, but I, I read yours, and I found it fascinating. I don't know why you made it appendix instead of not part of the book. But
3: Yeah, I have no unless idea. You had, I never know how these things come together. <laughs> but, well, you know, unless I was, somebody
2: I, said you just, you have to have an appendix, so you took the last three or four chapters and you stuck them in there. Um, but, yeah, but I don't um, really know
3: why they ended up as appendices. I, I really don't should. know. But, you know, these it's it's always a mystery how... I write a book and how it ends up getting published, even though I've done 36 of them. It's like, how did that happen? I never really get it. <laughs> but just talking about, you know, people who are open and people who aren't, I, I was in Israel a few years ago, and I was at one of these um, uh, sort of like, I guess you call them like shrines, and the intensity of the prayer that was going on there, and they were very Orthodox people, men and women, different sides, and they were praying, and there were these guys studying and arguing over the text like we were talking about before, and I'm always so fascinated by this, and here, these were people who do this all day, and so I walked over to these couple of these guys, and they were older men, and I asked them, now I could start up a conversation, and they said, um, maybe I don't know if i asked them what they were studying or what comment they were studying, the, the Bible passage for the week, but they, I said, what commentaries were they reading? And they rattled off the, the standard ones and they said, do you study? And I said, yes. And they said, well, what commentaries do you read? So I rattled off the mystical one and they looked at each other and they looked at me and they just made a face and they said, this is, this is an English you know, I'm making it English vernacular, but they said, "Man, are you reading a bunch of crap? You've got
0: to read the normal guys. <laughs>
3: don't don't read those crazy mystic guys. It's not it's not really good good for you." <laughs> so, not not everybody is into the stuff I'm into.
2: <laughs> well, I think you know spirituality is is everywhere, and and it's no, it's good. so much. Mad- I mean, it's it's so magical that that i just i just find it fascinating where where i find it sometimes i find it in the words of a song that that um is obviously a love song and yet it also talks to i mean there there's one till there was you and and to me that's that's a person's song to the divine you know i was lost and alone until there was you And there was love all around, but I didn't hear it, I didn't feel it, or hear it singing, until there was you. So that it's sort of like when you recognize the divine and the divine within yourself. Then, then you're. And this is a phrase. Everybody is gonna, they're gonna, they will know what I'm about to say because I say it so often. Once you have that recognition, your life goes from black and white to technicolor.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're quoting Beatles lyrics, and, but you could watch the movie Sister Act. You know, it's the same thing where they take you know pop songs and they can turn them into you know divine divine music. You can ring Song of Songs in the Hebrew Bible. Oh if, yeah, you know, that was popular love poetry and turn that into sacred music. So yeah, yeah, it's it is all around you.
2: Um, I think I think and, and, and what so gets it, to me, what gets to me is that there are spiritual messages all around you. You trip over them every day. And if you took the time to yeah. notice them, it would be an amazing education.
3: Yeah. And and there used to be, and there probably still are, not I shouldn't say used to be, but there are spiritual teachers all around us that we oftentimes just never really tap into or or recognize. I remember, you can't do this anymore, but in Jerusalem, um, at the Dome of the Rock, which is, I think, the third holiest place in Islam, uh, there was a time when non-Muslims could go and visit. Uh, And you could go inside the shrine, and at the Dome of the Rock, and the rock itself was carved out And there were stairs leading inside the rock. And this rock is supposed to be the rock from which Muhammad, peace be upon him, flew to heaven. And this is the rock that is supposedly the the cornerstone, like, of the the planet. You know, this is is a very holy rock. And I think it's maybe the rock that, uh, I don't know if this is right, maybe... Isaac was almost sacrificed on. It's got all kinds of mythology to it, but it doesn't matter. It was was carved out, and you could walk down this this short flight of steps and go into the rock, and you could look up through the top of the rock where they cut a hole and see the dome. It was just a gorgeous thing aesthetically. But there was this Sufi guy who sat in the side the rock, and he would teach if you were interested and teach just not not official islam but just teach you know islamic mysticism teach sufism and he could do it in uh-huh. multiple languages and you could sit oh, and wow. just ask questions and learn from him and it was this powerful thing to sit in this this the center of the universe you know mythology mythologically and listen to the, the teachings of the sufis and it was so powerful Sadly, you can't even get in the building anymore because of politics and, and, and all uh, the, the ethnic strife that, that people's idiocy has. You know, there's, a humanity
2: story. With. there's a story about right. the Dalai Lama. Somebody asked him um, who was his greatest teacher, and he said um, Adolf Hitler. And it took the questioner back and said, "How could that be?" and he said, "You know he taught me compassion and forgiveness because he he chased him out of his homeland and everything, and it was sort of like it it made me stop and think about people that had given me that that sent me into conniption fits because they were they were mean to me or they were ugly to me and and everything and and they were meant to teach me something, and I didn't really recognize it until much later. And, and now, when somebody really, really pushes my buttons, I stop really fast, and, and, and I say, okay, what am I meant to learn from this? Because it's not meant to make me angry. It's meant to teach me. And,
3: yeah, and when yeah. I figure... I mean,
2: message... Go ahead.
3: No, to say the message is what you're saying is right. I, I have to question whether the Dalai Lama said that about Adolf Hitler only because Adolf Hitler had nothing to do with the Dalai Lama being kicked out of Tibet. That was the Chinese. Well, it, it,
2: it, was, it was whoever kicked him out. Was his, yeah, that was, Unger, that was what the it, Chinese. Okay. Yeah, so, maybe but, it was Mao. I don't his, know. But. His answer was, you know, the, the guy that kicked him out of his homeland and took his... his all of everything from him and 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 it was that he taught him compassion and forgiveness.
0: Yeah.
2: And um, you know, I thought you know, when when I heard that story it was like, okay, so wait a minute, there are lots of people not not lots. There were a couple of people in my life that that really irritated the bejeebers out of me. And it was like, why? What are they teaching me? What are they supposed to be teaching me that I am refusing to learn? And, and you know, if you, can, if you can stop yourself and think that way when something happens, first of all, they no longer bother you. And second of all, it teaches you an important lesson. If you're, if you're that resistant to learning it, it must be very important.
0: Mm. So, yeah, that could,
3: that could be... Yeah, the Dalai Lama is an amazing character.
1: I, I oh, was once yeah.
3: with him. Um, I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet him. I, I was no. left I, I was sitting next to him and I couldn't I couldn't say a thing.
0: <laughs> you know, to oh, no.
3: who were who were, you know, actually talking with him and he was very open and I'm sitting there going, Oh hello, <laughs> <laughs> the Dalai Lama what could I possibly have to say to his holiness the Dalai Lama I was completely done
2: that yeah even given time I'm not sure I would, I would have the right words to ask an intelligent question
3: yeah I don't know
2: what I would ask
3: I have no idea
2: <laughs> a blessing maybe
3: Oh uh, yes, that's a good point. I could I I could ask for a blessing. I once, yeah, I did that once to a swami, a Hindu swami. I've forgotten his name now, and it was the same thing. I, what I thought, just what you said. I couldn't I couldn't come up with any conversation or or a, a question, so I asked him for a blessing, and he said no. He said you don't need a blessing. Oh, yeah. You're already divine. Everyone's divine. What am I going to give you a blessing for? Wake up! It's God. You're all God. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my uh i like
3: i like that that was a good that was a good answer
2: well you know it's it's um there are these people that we look to that we think are so that, that, that are they're that that are sages that that are that are definitely teachers and I think sometimes we forget that that they're also still learning and and you know they're they're here and they're here for a reason, and and it's, it's they haven't used their words up, or there, there's <laughs> there's there, there's more that they need to do. And I mean, some of these Tibetan monks that that intentionally meditate themselves to death, I think are I think they're in need of help. But um, you know, I I do believe that that the more you know, the more you are obligated to share. And and um,
3: oh, I I think I think you're right about that. I I think this guy gave me a good answer. I think he was trying to teach me something. I don't think he was being rude. But. Oh yeah,
2: no, I agree with you. Well, that's that's yeah. why I named the, that's why I named this show Nightlight. I figure that the, the you know with the hundreds of books that I've read and people that I've had on the show that that every now and then. You know, there's going to be a light that goes out there that touches people's hearts. It's gonna, and I just know that that in the darkness of the times, a night light is always important. And not that mm-hmm. I'm it, but that mm-hmm. the the information that is shared goes out there and, you know, maybe maybe touches somebody or wakes them up or gives them hope or gives them a new yeah, direction, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Kindles the light inside of them or knocks the, whatever's, what does Jesus say to put your light under a bushel, knocks the bushel away so you can be your own light? I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: no, it's, it's. I mean, um,
3: ultimately, ultimately you have to be your own guru, but most of us are not oh, yeah. prepared for that.
2: Well, I think that, that. Somebody once said to me that I should do this work full-time. I, I taught special ed for 25 years. And my response was, you know, well, when I, when I learn as much as I'm supposed to learn, if there's anybody around that needs to be taught, I'll do it. And this person jumped, jumped on me verbally and said, no, no, you don't understand. It's your journey that is the teaching tool. And um, when I, I, I was ordained – a long time ago, and um, when I did serve in the pulpit, I told people you know i I don't feel worthy of preaching to you, but i will I will share with you the mistakes I've made and the consequences thereof, so that you can make your own mistakes and you know you don't have to repeat mine and so you know it was sort of like, okay along the way this is how I learned this, this is the mistake I made. This is how I put, you know, two feet plus an arm in my leg in my mouth and, you know, this is this is the consequences it had in my life and it was always funny. Um because the lessons are always funny when you when you look back at them. Not the moment, but right. when you look back they have humor. And and so it's you know, it was it was a good message you know our our journey is the way we teach if once we arrive there's no point you know there, there's just another mountain to climb but um, but it's it's the journey that is so important and, and if you can share that journey with other people and they can get something out of it it's so important I just noticed our time my gosh we talked through two hours
3: <laughs> we did
2: I want, to thank, I want to thank you so much. Is there, is there a website you want to send people to or someplace you want them to be able to contact you or check you out or whatever?
3: Yeah, you could go. My website is rabbirami.com, and okay. my business website is oneriverfoundation.org. So you can go to either of those spots, and, yeah, that's, that's how you get in touch with me.
2: Also you have that blogspot dot com. No, by Rami. But
3: that's a yeah, that doesn't work anymore.
2: Oh, that's so. too bad.
3: Yeah, that's that, not well, that's Well how not about your
2: thing. how how about your podcast?
3: You can go to spiritualityhealth.com, and you can find the podcast there. It's there uh I work for Spirituality Health magazine. You can also I mean, you should subscribe to the magazine, and while you're at the bookstore getting the magazine, you can also <laughs> pick up a copy of Judaism Without Tribalism. But, um, yeah, yeah, I work for Spirituality and Health Magazine, and you can subscribe to the magazine. The podcast is free, and you can get it at spiritualityhealth.com.
2: Fantastic. It's been such a joy to talk to you. I can't thank you enough.
3: Well, it was a delight, Barbara. Thank you very much for having
2: me. Well, it was it was definitely my pleasure. And, and I, because you've written so many books, I imagine we'll have you back here to, to delve even further into a lot of this material. So thank you again for being here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, please do check this book out. This one is special. You're going to want to read it and reread it and uh, do a whole bunch of uh, considering your life and, and your perception of how you are dealing with your reality. So good night, everybody. Thanks for being here, and I'll see you next week.